Well, the reason why I'm thrilled to be with you this morning is because we get to open God's word together. You know, we live in a day and age where people are like ships lost at sea without uh, any oars, without any sails, without a motor, without a compass. And yet we have the foundation of God's word. It is his radical, remarkable, reliable, reasonable, readable, revolutionary revelation, and it will not return to him void. I'm excited to share it. I hope you're excited to hear it this morning. Let's pray together and then open God's word. Father, thank you for the honor and the privilege that I have to speak here this morning at Calvary Chapel Chino, Chino Hills. I pray, Lord, that your word would touch and impact your people. I pray, Lord, that you would meet each saint here right where they're at, that those who are here who don't know you will be touched by the gospel and come to know Christ as their Savior. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you and pray you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I will not be reading the passage yet, but to prepare ourselves, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure you've all noticed by now that we are living in a world that is radically infatuated and obsessed with the theme of purpose. Purpose seems to be all the rage these days. In fact, if you were to do a Google search on the top trending buzzwords of the 21st century, I wouldn't be surprised if you were to discover that the word purpose is very close to the top of the list. You're hard-pressed to watch a movie or a television show, to listen to a radio program or a podcast, to read a book or an article, to attend a conference or even a church service where the theme of purpose is not touched on to one degree or another. Purpose, purpose, purpose. Everyone and their grandmother wants to know what the purpose of man is. And that shouldn't surprise us because the God that we serve is not a whimsical or a capricious God. No, he's a God of order, he's a God of intentionality, and he's a God of purpose. And he has created us as people to have purpose in life, to know what that purpose is, and ultimately to live it out. But unfortunately, even though there are more answers to the question, what is the purpose of man, than there are fingers and toes on the entire planet to count them with, sadly, most of those answers have nothing to do with what the purpose of man is according to the designer of man's purpose. And this morning, we want to answer that question, what is the purpose of man together, and explore what God's word has to say about what the true purpose of man really is. But before we do that this morning, I want to assure you of one thing, and I want you to note this very, very well. The purpose of man is extremely, extremely, extremely simple. There's nothing complicated or complex or intricate about it in any way, shape, or form. It's very, very simple. And here it is. The purpose of man is to know his maker, be known by his maker, and make his maker known. So that others may know his maker as their maker, be known by his maker as their maker, and make the maker of him who made his maker known to them as their maker, known as the maker of others. 
so that others may know the maker of him who made his maker known as the maker of the ones who made the maker of the one who made his maker known to them as their maker, known as their maker, as their maker, and that they will also make him known to others who will in turn know him, be known by him, and in multiplicity to the degree of infinitude, make him known. Simple. No, friends, it is indeed simple, but as you just saw from that very ridiculous and pathetic illustration, we as people have a way of complicating the simple. No, it's true. The purpose of man is indeed to know his maker, to be known by his maker, and to make his maker known. Now, we as Christians have no problem whatsoever with the first two parts of that purpose statement, do we? We have no problem with saying that we know our maker, that we know God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the one who fashioned and formed every star and into every planet and flung them into space and set them spinning in their orbit. The one who crafted every snowflake that's ever fallen upon every mountaintop and every grain of sand that adorns every seashore and every desert landscape. That we know him whom the Bible says is a consuming fire, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. The one that the Bible tells us uses the earth as his footstool, the one before whom all the nations of the earth are but a drop in the bucket and as the fine dust of the scales. We know him before whom seraphim fly and cover their eyes and feet and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know him. And it's pretty amazing, isn't it, to be able to say that we know such a great and awesome God. And we have no problem with the second part of that purpose statement, to say that we not only know our maker, but that our maker knows us. You know, it's one thing for people to boast about knowing someone of great significance, but when it's confirmed that that person actually knows them, it's pretty special. For years, Pastor Jack told me that he personally knew Arnold Schwarzenegger. I said, yeah, right. One time we were in Hollywood together and Arnold was on a stage ready to receive an award and all of a sudden he points to the crowd and he goes, Pastor Jack. I'm like, he does know him. Why are you still stalking me? I put a restraining order on you. Ah, that's how he knows him. By the way, I made that whole thing up. Never happened. But no, not only do we know our maker, but our maker knows us. In fact, he knows us so well, he knit us together in our mother's womb. He's so intimately familiar with us, he calls us by name. He knows the number of hairs upon our head. He knows our sitting down and our uprising. He knows our thoughts from afar. And we'll never have to hear him say those dreadful words in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, your worker of iniquity. I never knew you. No, he knows us and he will know us eternally. And scripture speaks to this as far as knowing our maker, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. As far as him knowing us, Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He not only knew us, he knew us so well that he foreknew us. We have no problem with that. It excites us to say that we know our maker, to say that our maker knows us. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's the third part of that purpose statement that we struggle with, isn't it? Not just knowing our maker and being known by our maker, but making our maker known. 
It's one thing to get excited about making someone renowned on this earth known because other people can see them, they can hear their voice, they can touch them, right? But when you're talking about a God whom people cannot see with their physical eyes, whose voice they cannot hear audibly, whose presence they cannot feel physically, it's a totally different matter. And I want to ask you all to be honest this morning. How many of you feel a twinge of nervousness at the thought of walking up to a perfect stranger, or maybe worse, a family member, and telling them that they have violated the law of a holy God, that there's a coming day of judgment where they will have to stand before this God, and if they don't repent and place their faith in Christ Jesus, who lovingly died on a cross and rose again, they will spend an eternity in hell. How many of you feel a twinge of nervousness at that thought, right? (laughs) The rest of you, you know what the Bible says about liars. (laughs) No, of course you feel a twinge of nervousness the way that I do and others do. Of course, every church has that fearless brother or sister, They call you up on a Saturday morning. Hey, what are you doing? You're like, oh, nothing. No plans for the day. Oh, great. You want to go with me to share the gospel on the streets? Ah! Actually, I forgot. I have an air appointment today. But you're bald. Right? You know how it goes. Listen, Ray Comfort experiences fear in sharing the gospel. And he has shared the gospel with everything that breathes on the earth. And a few inanimate objects as well. So you can relate to that, and I can relate to that, and we would much rather, if we're honest with ourselves, do anything rather than share the gospel with someone. We'd rather hang out with our Christian friends and fellowship. We'd rather go to a church service. We'd rather go to a Christian concert and bop our heads to the tunes. We'd rather go to a prayer meeting, a men's event, a woman's event. But friends, isn't it because there was a time in our lives when someone cared enough not only to know their maker and be known by their maker, but to make their maker known to us that we're able to enjoy all those things that are associated with our faith. And I know that it's not a popular subject to discuss, but I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters, that making our maker known, which is a grand part of our purpose on this earth, is one of the most important things that we can talk about as believers. Because if we miss the mark here, we're not ultimately fulfilling our full purpose as God's people. We need to recognize that we were created to glorify God by bringing him pleasure through obedience. There is that detestable four-letter filth word in Christianity today, obedience. Oh, but how blessed we are that we get to obey a good and loving God. And as 1 John says, in this is love that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We need to recognize that we were truly made to glorify God. And this morning, the Apostle Paul will have some words for us on our calling to not only know our maker, be known by our maker, but make our maker known. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
One of my favorite dynamics in life is something called paradigm shift. Paradigm shift is indicative of someone having had a certain perspective on something and then receiving new information that radically transforms that perspective. One of our staff members told us about his brother who lived in Utah back in 2013 when one day a group of masked men with knives pushed him into the back room of a building, knocked him out, ripped open his chest, and tore out his heart. And there were people outside that room who knew what was going on, who could have gone in there and stopped it, but they did absolutely nothing about it. Now, let me give you some more information. That group of masked men were heart surgeons. The masks were surgical masks. The knives were scalpels. They pushed him on a gurney. That back room of a building was the operating room of a hospital. They knocked him out with anesthesia. They ripped open his chest surgically. They took out his heart because it was a bad one, and they replaced it with a new one. And no one did anything to stop them because they loved the man and wanted to see his life preserved. You, my friends, have just experienced collective paradigm shift. (laughs) What was at one moment... A gruesome murder scene in a split second became a life-saving mission. And I believe this passage of Scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a paradigm shift type passage that can totally and radically transform our entire perspective on our full purpose as God's people. And not only knowing our maker, being known by our maker, but making our maker known. 2 Corinthians is Paul the Apostle's either third or fourth letter to the Corinthians because he mentions a previous letter here in his epistles. And Paul founded the church of Corinth sometime around 50 AD at the end of his second missionary journey just before his departure to the church in Ephesus. And 2 Corinthians is what's known as an occasional or an informal epistle. Paul's epistles typically had some form to them, some overarching theme, while this epistle is a little more disjointed without a massive overarching theme, yet when we look at the context, we can definitely see some glimmers of a theme within it. Paul begins in verse 7 of chapter 4 as he touches on what I call Christ inside of us, the internal reality. Christ inside of us, the internal reality. As he builds his context here, he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, but, what we, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul's reminding these believers that he so passionately loved, whose church he himself had personally founded, that we have inside of these earthen vessels, and I love how he refers to us as people as earthen vessels because we're made of clay, we're made of the dirt of the earth, and and we're cracked and we're broken, but inside of us, God has deposited the, the treasures of the gospel. He's deposited within us Christ Jesus himself. And in the previous verses, he touches on that as he talks about God shining in the darkness through the light of Christ. He's shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That as fallen as we are, as broken as we are, as helpless as we are, and I know that many of you sitting here this morning are feeling that perhaps very tangibly today as you wrestle with your own fallenness and brokenness. But Paul is saying you have inside of you this treasure in your earthen vessel. This is Christ inside of us. This is the internal reality. And then in 
verse 10, he says, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now he brings significance to the special reality of Christ being inside of us by saying, listen, we associate with the death of Christ. We have been crucified with Christ so that now the resurrection life of Jesus may be manifested in us, that we would live in a way that says our Savior is not dead. He is alive and he reigns not only upon his throne in heaven, but he reigns upon the throne of our heart because we are his temple. That is Christ in us. And then Paul transitions and in verse 18 now, he touches on Christ ahead of us Christ ahead of us, the eternal realm. And he says in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So now he takes the minds of the Corinthians and he shifts them toward the eternal. He says, look, Christ Inside of you is the internal reality, but, but Christ is also ahead of you in eternity. That's the eternal realm that you're now heading towards, and, and he builds this up in verse 6 of chapter 5. He says, so we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He's saying, look, we're here on this earth now. We're absent from the presence of God, but but our desire is to leave this world and be with him. That's our heart's true longing. This is not our home. We yearn for the eternity that we were created for. That is the eternal realm. That is Christ ahead of us. And then we see in verse 9, where he continues building on this eternal realm. He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, as we head toward that eternal realm where Christ has gone ahead of us, where we will finally meet him face to face, while we're absent from him there and we're still present on this earth here, We make it our aim, whether here or there, to be well-pleasing to him. We make it our ambition as Christians, as those who have been saved and redeemed, to please God in all that we do. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, our time to do that on this side of eternity is very, very short. When I was here on that Wednesday evening, I mentioned that my father... My biological father, this coming January, will celebrate his 113th birthday. Yeah. I'm 83, but plastic surgery works wonders. I'll give you my surgeon's name after the service. No, but my father is 112, will turn 113, Lord willing, as he progresses into the new year. Uh, We're getting ready to change his legal name to Methuselah soon. And he, I'm 48, really. He was 65 when I was born. 
And I know that when you hear his age, almost 113, it just sounds like so long, right? And in, in relative terms, it is. But I assure you, in, ter- in comparison to eternity, it's but a blip. To my father, it's been but the blink of an eye. And friends, we are headed toward eternity. And the question is, is are we living to please our God? Are we living to bring him pleasure? Years ago, I gathered my family together in our living room, and I unveiled for them something that I called the Zwayne Family Vision Statement. And it goes like this. To gladly and passionately glorify God in every thought, affection, word, and deed while constantly enjoying him as our greatest pleasure and most precious treasure. I've memorized that. My wife's memorized that. Our five children have memorized that. It's become the popular topic of discussion. It's become the foundation for our family devotions. Because if there's anything I want my children to know and their children to know, and their children's children to know, it's that they were made by God and for God, and in everything they say, think, do, and feel, their ambition needs to be to please him and bring him pleasure. Amen? And I assure you that the things that we're not cool to have done in the eyes of man on this earth will be the coolest things to have done when we stand before God and give account for our lives. And Paul says that here. He makes it clear that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for how we live these lives that God has given us. And I praise God that that's not a judgment onto condemnation for Christians, but it will be a day of serious reckoning where God will examine our lives and, and scripture talks about suffering loss in terms of reward that could have been ours. It's a serious, serious time and I don't wanna show up on that day with regrets. I'm sure you all remember that popular television program called What Would You Do? Where they would set up a social experiment and they would have hidden cameras and they'd have actors and unsuspecting people would find themselves in the midst of a social experiment unbeknownst to them where where someone would be uh, having some racial slurs thrown at them or someone's being abused or or someone is being uh, picked on and then they see how people react. And eventually at the end, John Quinones comes out with his crew and they come up and they talk to the people who didn't know that they were being filmed and they ask him about the reaction. And more often than not, those that responded in the right way and intervened will look at the camera and in so many words, they would say, I'm glad I did. But those who didn't intervene, those who didn't speak up, who didn't do what was right, will look into the camera and in so many words say, I wish I would have. And friends, when we're standing before the Lord on that day, we don't want to be the I wish I would have type of people. We want to be the I'm glad I did type of people that we surrendered and yielded to the Lord as flawed as we are, as many sins as we'll commit over the course of our lifetime. Still, we were repentant and yielded and desiring to be used by him genuinely. Now, Paul makes it clear in verse 15, as he continues on this theme of Christ ahead of us, the eternal realm, that this call to live for the pleasure of God is not unfounded. It's not baseless. He says in verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And I don't know how struck you are by this, but if you're anything like me, there are many passages in scripture that have not really impacted you in the way that they should have. I've been a Bible student for decades and a Bible teacher as well. I'm the spokesman for a wonderful ministry called the National Bible Bee Competition. I also am a host and a moderator for them. And, and scripture memory is a deep, deep passion of mine. 
But I'm ashamed to say that there are certain passages that, that have not struck me the way they should. And we often get what I call the John 3.16 syndrome. We know John 3.16 so well, we can quote it forwards and backwards, maybe even in our sleep. But, but sometimes we're not struck by, by what Christ did, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And how much are we touched by these words here? And he, Christ, died for all. Christ? God from all eternity who robed himself in human flesh died? He, he went and subjected himself to the blasphemies that came from the tongues and vocal cords and lips that he created? That he, he gave himself to be nailed to a, a piece of wood that came from a tree that he fashioned and formed? That he allowed his, his glorious hands to be nailed to that piece of wood by spikes that came from the elements in the earth that he had crafted, that he paid the highest price ever paid for anything ever purchased in the history of the universe to make us his. Does that strike us? This is the foundation that Paul lays as the reason why we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again, that we should no longer live for our pleasure, but to please him in all that we do. And friends, let me tell you this, value impacts behavior. We treat different pieces of currency in different ways, don't we? We don't treat a $100 bill in the same way we treat a penny, do we? As Paul Tripp talks about in one of his books, if I reach into my pocket and pull something out and I, I, I hear this clanging noise on the ground, which has happened to me often, and I see a penny, there are many times where I won't even give it the time of day to stoop down and pick it up. You ever do that with a $100 bill? If you do, let me know where you hang out, because I want to follow you around a bit. Of course not. But if the United States government suddenly switched those values, and that penny became worth a $100 bill, and the $100 bill became worth a penny, you can be sure that your behavior toward those two pieces of currency would change. First, you'd weep buckets of tears over all the pennies you didn't pick up, because you'd be a millionaire by now. And then you start using the $100 bill as a piece of scrap paper or a napkin to wipe your hands with. Value impacts behavior. Friends, how much do you value that he died for all to redeem us and make us his? And then in verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is another popular verse we're all familiar with. We see it on artwork in our Christian friends' homes or in, in maybe our friends' businesses where they serve the Lord, but do we recognize the significance in the context of this? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Which old things? The old things associated with living for ourselves and our pleasure and our agenda. Those have passed away. We're new creations in Christ. And now Paul crescendos into our text, verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul goes from talking about Christ inside of us, the internal reality, to Christ ahead of us, the eternal realm, and now he transitions into Christ through us, the universal responsibility. Christ through us, the universal responsibility. 
And Paul here minces no words in talking about what our true purpose fully and ultimately is in life as God's people. And here, Paul speaks of the fact that we were reconciled to God. We were brought in the right relationship with him, having been separated because of our sin. And now God has called us in relation to that to something specific, and he's given us a specific role. And friends, here's paradigm shift number one. If you're in here this morning, or if you're watching or listening to this on the airwaves or online, if you profess to be a Christian, if you call yourself by the name of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of that Nazarene who walked the dusty roads of Israel 2,000 years ago, if you claim that, then you are right now 100% in full-time ministry. You're like, wait, what? I came here to enjoy myself, large, eyeballed, squeaky-voiced Arab man. Will you leave me alone? What do you mean full-time ministry? Isn't that for the pastor? Isn't that for the Christian missionary? Isn't that for the counselor in the church? Isn't that for a Christian parachurch organization leader? What do you mean a full-time ministry? Absolutely. Because God has reconciled you, he's now called you to be an instrument through which he pleads to the world to be reconciled to himself. And he has called you officially his ambassador. That's what you are. You say, but wait a minute, I, 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 I don't want that. Wait a minute, I, I didn't ask for that. Wait, I don't like that. Oh, well, and too bad. <laughs> In fact, you're as much an ambassador of Jesus Christ and a minister of reconciliation as you are a human being if you have a human father and mother. And I hope that's all of you in here this morning. There are people in our day and age that, that don't want to identify with what they truly are, but there is fantasy and there is reality. And if you have been born again and you have God's DNA in you, then you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. No one ever looks at a person and asks, are they a human being? No, they ask the proverbial question, right? What kind of human being are you? And friends, if you're a Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. You have a full-time ministry of reconciliation. My question to you is what kind of ambassador have you been? And how have you been fulfilling this ministry that God has given you, that he has entrusted into your care? And do you know what's amazing about our great and awesome God? is he never calls us to do anything that he doesn't equip us to be able to do. Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the word prepared and I love the word beforehand, and especially when those two words are connected to the word food. I grew up in a Middle Eastern home, as you all know by now, and Middle Eastern moms can sometimes spoil their kids almost close to death. And I had an older brother who was about 14 years older than me, extremely, extremely successful, but as Arab tradition would have it, he still lived at home with the family. And my mom realized that she had handicapped him domestically because she did everything for him. And so I'd come home from school, mom, can you please make me a sandwich? Make you a sandwich, make yourself a sandwich. You're going to grow up. You're going to marry a woman who's not going to feed you the way that I do. You're going to end up starving to death. 
she was wrong, as you can tell. I thank God that my beautiful wife, Rachel, loves to prepare my food beforehand for me. A number of years ago, I heard about a restaurant called The Melting Pot. And I am a chocolate addict. Uh, I absolutely love chocolate. And so I heard about this chocolate fondue that they have there. And you, you, you melt chocolate in this little pot. And you could dip uh, apples and strawberries and graham crackers in there. And I said, honey, make reservations. We are going to this chocolatey paradise. And so she made reservations, and we went, and we sat down, and we, we ordered all this amazing chocolate stuff. And, and lo and behold, you can also uh, order food at this restaurant as well. So we ordered our dinner, ordered the chocolate, and we're sitting there, and, and my poor wife, she's talking to me, and all I'm hearing is wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I have all these chocolatey visions dancing in my head, you know. And then all of a sudden, the waiters begin to come out, and I see them holding these pots of raw chicken, raw meat, raw vegetables, and I look up with this confused look on my face. And by the way the waiter looked at me, I could tell they had seen the same look on the faces of many other men. And he goes, oh, yes, sir, actually, you cook your own food here. <laughs> I cook my own what here? I almost ran outside to make sure it still said restaurant on the outside of the building. Do they not realize that the operative word in the word restaurant is the word rest? I don't come to a restaurant to cook my own food. I was waiting for them afterward to escort me to the back to wash my own dishes. <laughs> oh, the maniacal genius who hatched this demonic plot. You know, bring them here, make them cook their own food, charge them twice the going rate. <laughs> evil, evil man. Well, friends, I say all that to say that God does not do that with us. He doesn't call us to fulfill the greatest calling that's ever been given to man to represent him as his ambassadors and then tell us, oh, go figure it out on your own. No, Paul is saying here he's prepared our good works, including our good works of evangelism beforehand, ahead of time, so that we can just walk in them. Here's paradigm shift number two. Paradigm shift number two, 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master. Listen, prepared for every good work. You heard Paul in Ephesians 2.10 say that our good works are prepared for us. Now he's saying we can be prepared for every good work as we walk uprightly in intimate fellowship with the Lord. This is mind-blowing. The way this looks, friends, is like this. As you and I as Christians walk throughout our lives, day to day, as we interact with people at work, as we do our daily business in public, as we go and, and fellowship with our friends or hang out with our family, whatever we do, we go to school, along the path of life are these nicely, neatly prepackaged good works of evangelism that are prearranged by God with a bow on top of the box. They're prepared for us. We're walking with the Lord. We're prepared for them. And as we walk along the path of life, these two things come together in this perfect point in time and space in something that I call the divine convergence. And if you've never experienced the divine convergence through making your maker known, then you have not lived life yet. What a joy to be used by God. You know, before I became a Christian, it was 
always a dreadful thing when someone said, I was used, or you said you were used. You knew that negative things were always going to follow. But is there any greater honor for us as God's people than to say, I was used by the living God? How awesome to, to see God orchestrate these good works of evangelism that are prepared for us and then prepares us for them and then uses us in the midst of them. And oftentimes we're not struck in the way that we should be by this because we, as people, often make so much of man and so little of God. But I want you to recognize who God is and who you are in comparison so that you are struck by this. Listen to this illustration. Right now, if a beam of light came flying through this sanctuary at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, not per hour, not per minute, per second, you happen to have your saddle handy and you hopped on this beam of light and flew through space, at that speed, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you a second and a half to reach the moon. In nine minutes, you would be at the sun, 93 million miles away. In four years, you would reach Alpha Centauri, which is the star closest to our solar system. But if you hopped on this beam of light at the beginning of our galaxy and flew all the way across it to the other end, it would take you 100,000 years to complete that journey at 186,000 miles per second nonstop. Second and a half to the moon, nine minutes to the sun, four years to Alpha Centauri, 100,000 years to go from one end of our galaxy to the other. Friends, there are over 100 billion galaxies with over 100 billion stars in each galaxy. And the Bible says about our God that he spans the universe with his hand, that heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And he's called you and itty bitty little me to be his ambassadors. Absolutely mind-blowing. And we should be struck with the significance and the honor of that and with the seriousness of that responsibility. You know, we see in Mark chapter 1, the, the leper that Jesus had touched and healed. Remember that leper who had a death sentence, whose flesh was rotting on his bones, who was ostracized from society, from his family, from his friends, from his work, who was waiting as he died a slow, painful, miserable death. Jesus touched him and he healed him in an instant, gave him skin like a baby, and then Jesus looks at him and he says, don't tell anyone about what I just did for you. <laughs> yeah, right. It says, he went out and he began to proclaim it freely, so much so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the cities and they came to him from every direction. This one man made Jesus famous. Now, we have some similarities with him. Like this man, we had a terrible disease. Like this man, Jesus touched us and healed us. And like this man, we received a command from Christ. But the differences are far greater because the disease we had was far worse, the disease of sin and death that, that was leading us to hell. Our healing was far greater. We have been healed eternally. And our command was a positive and a far more important one, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So if we had a worse disease, received a greater healing, and have been given a far more important positive command, how much more famous should we be making Jesus in our lives? Friends, we need to recognize this calling. And I know, again, there are those nerves. And I know that we deal with personality differences. Some of us are more introverted and so on and so forth. But listen, God can empower you to represent him for his glory. You need to recognize that, as Ray Comfort often reminds us, that courage is not the absence of fear. It's the conquering of it. And the Lord is able to equip you and build you up and give you strength and begin to use you in accordance with your full purpose. Not only to know your maker and be known by your maker, but make your maker known. And listen, the power is not in your ability to communicate. 
It's not in how clever or how sophisticated or how knowledgeable you are. It's the simple gospel. Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I love how one preacher put it. He said, look, we need to be like a, a bomber flying overhead. We need to open the bay doors of our mouths and drop the gospel bomb and let the power of the gospel do its work. In closing, I want to share with you some divine convergences in my own life as God has blessed me to know him, be known by him, and make him known in different contexts. One of my favorite places to share the gospel is on airplanes because when you're 30,000 feet in the air and the person you're sharing with doesn't like it, you can simply say, there's the door. (laughs) And one time Ray and I were coming back from speaking out of state and we sat down and I saw next to me a young man who I found out was named Kellen. He was between 18 to 20 and very uh, nice, friendly, warm young man. I engaged him in normal conversation about natural things, and then I transitioned into sharing my testimony in the gospel. He was very open and very receptive, and then I thought, you know, I think uh, the movie that we recently produced would be fitting for him, and so I reached into my bag to pull out a movie that we produced called Audacity, which we actually screened here a number of years ago. I pull it out, and I go to give it to him, and I realize that I forgot that I had brought another movie of ours called Genius about the life of one of the Beatles, John Lennon. I already pulled it out. I was going to put it back, but I'm like, ah, I'll give it a shot. I'm thinking, this kid's never heard of the Beatles. Have you ever heard of the Beatles? Suddenly, his eyes goes wide as saucers. He goes, man, I'm a huge Beatles fan. No, I'm an insane Beatles fan. I go, whoa, man, let it be. (laughs) Let it be. (laughs) All you need is love right now, brother. He goes, man, I grew up listening to the Beatles. My brothers were huge Beatles fans. They got me into them. You you produced this movie. I mean, the guy almost came unhinged. Meanwhile, Ray Comfort's a few uh, aisles ahead. He's sitting next to a young lady named Stephanie who was in the Air Force, who was of Jewish descent, of which Ray is, as you know now, is of Jewish descent. And she was deathly afraid of flying. Yes, I said she's in the Air Force. (laughs) I don't know what they're churning out in our Air Force these days. And so, so she was terrified. And, and, you know, some people need a little ray of hope. She needed a little ray of comfort. <laughs> All five foot five of him. And so Ray begins to, to comfort her, and then he begins to share with her about their mutual Jewish Messiah, talking to her about Christ in Isaiah 53. And if you've never read it, I urge you to read it. 700 years before Jesus came, who he was, how, how he would conduct himself is all laid out in Isaiah 53. And at the end of the conversation, he looks at her and he says, do you believe that Jesus is a Messiah? And she looked at him and she said, now I do. We got off the plane and I had sensed that something wasn't right. And so I looked at our original itinerary. Ray and I were supposed to be sitting in seats 20A and 20B. But being the dunces that we are, we checked in at separate kiosks, proof that God uses the foolish things of the world. And, and it took me and put me next to the insane Beatles fan with a Beatles DVD and Ray next to the Jewish girl who needed a Jewish man to give her a little ray of comfort. That's what you call divine convergence. We're prepared beforehand. Our good works are prepared before us and God brought them together in that perfect point in time and space. Another time I was coming back from another trip. I sat down, another young man next to me and we struck up a conversation. Again, it was pleasant. All was going well. And then I said, oh, are you coming back to California? Is that where you live? Or do you live in the state that we were just at? And he goes, oh, no, I've only been in the United States for like two hours. 
I thought, what? This guy spoke like perfect English. Uh, I go, what do you mean? Where are you from? He goes, Lebanon. <laughs> I go, marhaba, which means hello in Arabic. He goes, oh, that's pretty good. I go, no, man, I'm Lebanese. Hach, mach, lach, bach. No, Arabic doesn't sound like that. Actually, it sounds exactly like that. So again, we strike up a conversation, and I, I go on to share the gospel with him, come to find he's from a Muslim background. It just went amazingly beautiful. And we land, and he goes, man, I, I, don't, I don't even have cell service here. I got to get a SIM card. And he's like, I don't even know if I'm here on the right day. He was here for a study abroad program at a university. And so I go, oh, use my phone. He makes a call, realizes he's here a day early. He couldn't stay on campus, had nowhere to go. So I took him to dinner and uh, paid for it, took him to, to a hotel, got him a hotel room, paid for it. And me and this man remained in touch. And he wrote to me, he said, man, I can't believe it. Of all the seats, the hundreds of seats on this airplane, I get seated next to the crazy Lebanese man. <laughs> Divine convergence. Prepared for every good work, every good work prepared beforehand. God brought him together in this perfect point in time and space. One more. A few years ago, I was headed to speak at a conference in Ohio, and whenever I travel, I typically like to take one of my five children with me. On this particular trip, I took my son Luke with me, who was a teenager at the time, and after making it through security, which is often a miracle for this very innocent-looking Arab, <laughs> my son points to the left-hand side, and he goes, Dad, look, isn't that one of our ministry's million-dollar bill gospel tracts? So I look to the left-hand side, I see a counter. Behind the counter are three police officers, and on the counter is a little metal stand, and on the stand is, is this rectangular-looking object. So I walk over there. I'm kind of wiping my eyes, thinking, man, am I seeing right? And I come to find that my son was wrong. It was not one of our ministry's million-dollar bill gospel tracts. It was an entire stack of our ministry's million-dollar bill gospel tracts. So I'm looking at this kind of confused. All of a sudden, one of the officers starts to walk over toward me, and I go, excuse me, officer, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit caught off guard here. You know, my ministry produced th these tracts, and I have no idea how they got here. And he looked at me, and he goes, easy. And I go, ah! <laughs> Felt like a sting operation, you know? I'm like, man, I had nothing to do with, with this. It was Ray Comfort's fault. <laughs> he goes, oh, easy. I can't believe you're here. Man, I, I love your ministry. I follow your ministry. Suddenly, it started to dawn on me, and I go, excuse me, officer, did you put these here? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and I go, they haven't stopped you? I'm thinking, they haven't busted you yet? He goes, not yet. <laughs> I remember thinking, it's coming. I gave him my card. I said, officer, I'd love to hear from you. Please, I want to know more about your story. So I come home to find this email in my inbox from this police officer. He said, good morning, sir. As the subject line says, it was nice to meet you and your son yesterday at the airport. Yesterday was the first time I've ever set the tracts out at the law enforcement podium, even though the thought occurred to me a few years ago when I first learned of your ministry through a homeschool conference. When my two partners and I arrived at the podium yesterday, I pulled out the tracts and set them up. They were curious and read the tract, including the gospel message on the back. That then sparked a conversation that lasted several hours. I used info from Ray Comfort, Vody Bauckham, Ken Ham, and all the other info I've picked up from a variety of sources like the Bible. They were not getting it. They challenged me on everything from ancient aliens to why are the Jews God's chosen people. Then you walked up and you looked like an ancient alien. <laughs> Easy fun home. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Then you walked up, 
after you left, I had to explain who you were and the total improbability of you walking up at that moment. As one of my partners put it, it was like having an Amazon Kindle on display, talking about Amazon products, and then Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, walking up. <laughs> Using God's blessing of mobile internet, I showed them livingwaters.com, 180, Noah, God versus evolution, and whatever else was up on the screen. After a 10-hour shift of witnessing, I believe they will begin following Christ. How beautiful is that? And think of what the officer said, right? Of all the days that he thought of doing that, it was that day. Of all the different airports we've gone through, it was that airport. Of all the directions my son could look in, it was in that direction. Of all the days over the course of years he thought of putting out that tract, it was that day. And of all the things that he could have been doing when I walked up, he was sharing the gospel from one of my tracts from my ministry. If you don't believe in the existence of God, you have got problems. <laughs> But friends, this is divine convergence. Our work's prepared beforehand. We're prepared before for them. And God brings them together in that perfect point in time and space. And look, I know, again, the challenge in wanting to share the gospel, it's terrifying. But as Ray often challenges people, if someone offered to give you, without a doubt, $100,000 for every person you shared the gospel with, and you had to do it by midnight tonight, <laughs> you can be sure you would be sharing the gospel. You'd rip people out of bed at 4 a.m. Hey, get up, listen to me, you, right? Oh, suddenly we're bold and courageous. And here's the kicker, as Ray says, are we willing to do for the love of money what we're not willing to do for the love of God and lost souls? That's convicting. But you know what's amazing is our God sympathizes with our weaknesses. He loves us, and he wants to come alongside us and help us do it. God wants you to fulfill your ultimate purpose in life. He, he wants you to understand the reality of Christ inside of us, the internal reality, of Christ ahead of us, the eternal realm, and of Christ through us, the universal responsibility. He wants you to not only know your maker and be known by your maker, but to also make your maker known. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these dear saints here today. Remind them that you sympathize with their weaknesses. That, Lord, you don't look down on them with condemnation and their fear of sharing the gospel, but you want to equip them to be faithful ambassadors. Would you please use them, Lord? Would you please help them to, to grow and get equipped in being the ambassadors that they're called to be so that they can stand before you on that day without regrets? We are not hawking Ginzu knives, Lord, and some cheap product we're disassociated from. We are byproducts of the gospel. We know its power personally. So equip my brothers and sisters not only to know you, to be known by you, but to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you.